this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think this is one of those rare techniques in, in the history of, of human medicine where it makes sense. The data seems to be following it and there's not much of a downside. There are a few of my partners that were a little slower to adopt the technique. And it was kind of nice because we had a built-in comparative group between blood patching and no blood patching. And as expected, complications are lower if you blood patch. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. You guys got to let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Today, we're going to be discussing percutaneous lung biopsies uh, with blood patching. Today, to help us with that discussion, we have Dr. Fred Lee. Dr. Lee is Chief of Abdominal Intervention at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Lee recently helped publish a paper on this topic in JVIR. I think it was the September edition. For our audience, if you'd like to follow along, feel free to hit the pause button and check out this paper, or just feel free to soldier on and then catch the paper on the back end. All right, so let's uh, talk a little bit about the types of blood patches and the technique of doing blood patches. So would you just talk about like first a differentiating uh, feature between what's mentioned in the paper between parenchymal blood patch versus pleural blood patch? Sure. So this can be a source of confusion because the naming is somewhat similar and I want to make sure that we're really clear. So a parenchymal blood patch is what we do in virtually every case. And the reason behind it is to try to lower our pneumothorax and other complication rate. And a parenchymal blood patch is very simple. It's just injecting autologous blood drawn from the patient's IV as you're withdrawing the introducer needle after the specimen has been obtained. So that's a parenchymal blood patch, and that's performed in virtually every patient. In this study, we mirrored what has been shown in the past that if you do that, you do decrease your complication rate and your chest tube rate. So we're pretty sure that it is a very valuable sort of prophylactic preventative uh, measure and, and we do it now routinely. At the beginning of the study period, we didn't do it routinely. There were a few of my partners that were a little slower to adopt the technique. And it was kind of nice because we had a built-in comparative group between blood patching and no blood patching. And as expected, complications are lower if you blood patch. So, so that's a parenchymal blood patch and it's routine and it's preventative and it looks like it's effective. And that's been shown in the literature before. So parenchymal blood patch for summary is through the 19 gauge introducer needle, five to 10 mLs of the patient's blood as you're pulling out the needle. Exactly. So very tail end of the procedure takes 10 to 20 seconds. You're just 
adding a little bit of blood as that trocar needle, or I'm sorry, as the introducer needle is being pulled out. Exactly. So once I'm getting near the end of the procedure and I've taken my last or second to last core, um, Marsha's watching and she starts uh, drawing blood from the patient's IV. If the patient has a saline infusion, when she withdraws the blood, she discards the first couple of cc's. So you're not just injecting saline, you're, you're injecting whole blood. She draws usually maybe, depends on the depth of the lesion, if it's deep up to 10 cc's, if it's superficial, maybe three, four, five cc's, something like that. And then as you're withdrawing the needle, you got to uh, get the rate exactly right. You want to inject as you're pulling back and you would like to inject the bulk of the blood at the pleural surface, if at all possible. So you have a good feel for how far the needle's in. And so you assume, okay, the nodule is three centimeters deep from the pleural surface. So when you get near the three centimeters, then you inject the bulk of the blood. The idea is, is that the whole blood will go into the air spaces and clot. And then it also fills the track as you pull the needle out. And this should, in theory, and now I think in practice, reduce the air leakage that you get from the puncture site. So it's a, it's a really simple procedure. It doesn't take any extra time and it's just really routine. The only caution I would say is that patients will sometimes, if you forcefully inject the blood and the blood goes into the airways, uh, they can get some coughing. Uh, from irritation of the airways. And even I tell patients, they occasionally get a little bit of hemoptysis from it. Uh, so I just warn people ahead of time. Sometimes if I'm going to do a big blood patch, Marshall will give a little extra fentanyl right before I start injecting. And that's usually all that's necessary uh, for the blood patch. So routine, simple, fast. We do it in every case. And I'm pretty sure that it uh, decreases complications. And you guys always use the IV site for which you're uh, using moderate sedation, or do you sometimes, uh, if that IV is not good, do you uh, do like a butterfly and stick at another site, or are you always able to get it from the IV? I would say about three quarters of the time, we can get it uh, straight from the IV. On occasion, you know, it's up against a valve or it's a mm -hmm. small vein or something like that. Uh, we're not able to adequately draw it, but I would say probably about three quarters of the time we can get it straight from the IV. Our, our nurses that place those IVs are aware that we're gonna try to draw from it. And so they, they do look for a, a reasonable size vein in the holding area when they're putting the IV in at the beginning. Sure. Are there any situations where you uh, agitate the blood or do you just take it, basically the, the nurse takes her syringe, gives it to you maybe in a sterile syringe and then you administer along the track? Or do you put it on a three-way stopcock and have another 10 cc syringe for agitation or just straight from her syringe, Marsha's syringe to your syringe to body? So I've seen several different practices around the country and around the world and how they do it. And everybody is a little bit different. For example, at UCLA, they let the blood clot. They figure that a blood clot is just as good as, as whole blood that sure. ends up clotting in the lung parenchyma. And and that there's certainly some, um, some validity to that, I would assume. I do it in a very simple way. And what I'm trying to do is decrease the open needle time when the needle is in the lung parenchyma. And also I try to do a wet to wet transfer of the syringe to the introducer needle. And so the way I do that is that I will pull the stylet back and then Marsha drips the blood onto the stylet and that 
through a capillary action, the blood then travels down the stylet into the hub of the needle. And then when you pull the stylet out, she continues to inject a drop or two and then, uh, and then screws the lure lock syringe directly onto the introducer needle. And we don't have any exposure of, of air to the lung parenchyma with, with that very simple technique. Excellent. I will say that I am a big fan of the blood patch technique. And so for those listening, me and Dr. Lee here may be uh, victims of confirmation bias and just talking about a, a procedure that we very much like and, and think is a great adjunct to lung biopsies. But for some reason, uh, I got in the habit of agitating mine. Like I just take a 10 cc syringe and an empty 10 cc syringe. And, and sometimes my nurses will draw the blood ahead of time. And so it's, it's nice to break up some of that clot that if I go to inject, can kind of get hung up and then I have to use a little extra force. And, and so it, it helps for a smoother introduction of the blood. And sometimes I don't know why I do it other than that, you know, old habit. And I'm used to doing it with gel foam, but I don't, I don't know if it adds anything. So I was just curious how you guys did it. Yeah, it makes some sense, especially, especially if the blood was drawn a little bit ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, usually with fresh blood, you know, she'll draw it right from the IV, hand it to me and I'll, and I'll put it right in. Sure. Uh, but if it's been drawn earlier... And there is some, uh, I think there is some rationale to allow the blood to kind of partially clot. And if you agitate it, you can distribute it throughout the syringe better and it probably injects better. So I think uh, there is some rationale for that as well. No data, but a, a rationale. And, and as you know, many of these small technique points are a matter of opinion, not a matter of fact. <laughs> so that's right. That's we right. We all have to under understand that just because we do it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But as, as long as you have success, more power to you. Right. A small amount of voodoo in everyone's technique is, is okay. So we talked about the parenchymal blood patch. Now, can we switch gears and you discuss the technique of the slightly different pleural blood patch? So the pleural blood patch is a salvage technique. And I first got the idea for the pleural blood patch back in the early 2000s, uh, when I was speaking to a thoracic surgeon about bronchopleural fistulas. And uh, he explained to me that some of the post-operative fistulas that the thoracic surgeons encounter after thoracotomy can be cured essentially by a large volume pleural blood patch. And how the thoracic surgeons do it is a little different than how we do it, but they have a pre-existing large chest tube in patients and they'll inject up to like 500 cc's of the patient's blood into the pleural space in an attempt to really seal a suture line that might be leaking. So having heard that from one of my thoracic surgery colleagues, I thought that this may be applicable to lung biopsies. And so back in 2011, we published our early experience doing this um, primarily with uh, fine needle aspiration lung biopsies. And we found that it was successful especially when you compare to simple aspiration. So we compared simple aspiration of a pneumothorax versus aspiration plus a pleural blood patch. And we found that the need for a chest tube was down when you combined aspiration and pleural blood patching. Now, what pleural blood patching is in the context of a lung biopsy is a, it's a salvage technique. And what it does is in most cases, it prevents you from having to place a conventional chest tube. And uh, the reason I was interested in this is primarily, I, I have to say that I have a touch of laziness in me. And I realized that, uh, that every time I had to put a chest tube in a patient after lung biopsy, 
the next day was, was quite a hassle. I mean, you, you're checking chest x-rays and, and you're uh, doing extra rounding on patients and you're clamping chest tubes and eventually you're pulling chest tubes and more chest x-rays and more monitoring of patients. And that became very user intensive, so to speak. And so in an effort to decrease my own efforts in this, in this area, I thought we, there has to be a better way. And an ounce of prevention, of course, is better than a pound of cure. And so uh, the next time I had a patient on the table, I tried this, this technique with just a smaller volume of blood than, than what the thoracic surgeons were doing. And lo and behold, it, it worked. And based on that single uh, first attempt at it, me and a couple of my partners started doing it a little bit more routinely. And I think we were able to prove in 2011 that it, it, it probably works. And so since then, it's become a, a stalwart of our, of our practice. So I can describe this in a little detail if you're, if you're interested in hearing it, Chris. Oh yeah, no, for sure. But, and that's uh, one of the things that I thought was, uh, I think I thought this was uh, one of the very strong points of the paper is that with the plural blood patch, you may still have post biopsy pneumothoraces, but if you can treat those with an aspiration and a plural blood patch, then you can decrease the rate at which you'll basically those patients can still have the same throughput as someone who just has a very tiny pneumothorax that doesn't require an intervention. So yeah, no, very, uh, please describe the, the plural blood patch. Yeah, your, your comment is exactly right. In most of the patients that get a plural blood patch, they don't even realize that we blood patch them. And uh, they just, they have the same experience as somebody that comes through just for a conventional uncomplicated biopsy. And so that's a very appealing thing. I mean, a, a patient with a chest tube sitting in the hospital is generally not a happy patient. And the physician that's checking chest x-rays and clamping and pulling chest tubes is generally not a happy physician. And so um, I think we can solve two problems at once if we can really decrease our chest tube rate. So how we do this, uh, and the way I think about it is, is a couple fold. The first is that all of us have had that situation where you go to do your lung biopsy, you pop your needle into the lung, either into the nodule or short of the nodule, and suddenly the lung deflates on you. And that is a, that is like a sinking feeling. You know, you're, you know, it's usually the first case of the day and, and, uh, and everything goes downhill from there. And so that is a, that is a nasty little situation. Blood patching works so well in that particular situation, because what happens is once you cause a pneumothorax, it's very difficult to get an adequate biopsy of the lesion, primarily because there's no uh, surface tension between the pleural surface and the lung. And so the lung can move like crazy with respiration and with manipulation. And if the pneumothorax continues to accumulate, the lung can continue to collapse and it's virtually impossible to, to hit the lesion and to, to wedge your needle into, into the nodule. And so what happens is if I'm doing a biopsy and I cause a pneumothorax, I just pause for a minute. I put in a five French multi-side hole catheter, just a, a U-centesis needle, and I'll describe the technique in a minute. I hook it right to wall suction, reinflate the lung, and now you're back to the native situation. So you can just go ahead and finish your biopsy. In fact, if the needle, sometimes the lung deflates so fast that your needle falls out of the lung and is kind of dangling in the pneumothorax, that's no problem. I just pull the needle back into the subcutaneous tissues. And when I reinflate the lung, generally the orientation of the nodule and the needle 
is as it was originally. And so oftentimes I can just now re-advance the needle right into the nodule without any other changes or manipulations. And so that re-expansion um, I find has been very useful, saves me a ton of time chasing nodules and inadequate specimens and patients that I'm worried about with a maybe a persistent or a growing pneumothorax. All that is just solved by by putting in a centesis needle, re-expanding the lung and, and finishing your biopsy. I wanted to just drill down on that for some of our uh, younger listeners or trainees or people who are just fresh out of practice and for some reason don't have a lot of experience doing lung nodule biopsies. But I've seen some of my partners get really frustrated with lung nodule biopsies. And that's one of the real sticking points is that I think CT gives you an illusion of like uh, that the, the lung is this static creature. But once, once you have a pneumothorax in play, everything is kind of out the window in terms of how that lung parenchyma is going to respond to your needle. And so I, I see, you know, my partner's still trying to drive it into a collapsed lung and they can't understand while, you know, the lung keeps moving or the needle's not where they would expect it. And so I just wanted to, to have everyone just take a beat and recognize that it's a very, very dynamic process, even without a pneumothorax. And when you add a pneumothorax, it's, it's a difficult hurdle to overcome in pushing forward with a biopsy. Absolutely. I completely agree. I, uh, the analogy that I think about is that you're trying to put a needle into a deflated balloon mm -hmm. and you're chasing it around. It's moving all over. It's flopping around in the chest. Patient might be in distress. Some pneumothoraces hurt on occasion, especially maybe with patients that have adhesions or something it's in, you're pulling on the lung. And so now you have a patient that might be a little short of breath or having pain. You're chasing a nodule. There might be some bleeding in the lung. I mean, everything's going to mm -hmm. hell in a handbasket. And instead of trying to continue with the biopsy, just put in a centesis needle. I just hook it right to wall suction. With a five French centesis needle, you can't develop really high negative pressures in the pleural space. It's usually just enough to re-expand the lung and collect any air that continues to leak during the procedure. Never had a complication with it. So just, yeah, just do it before you start to chase, chase lung nodules. So that's kind of the first thing that I, I keep in mind when, when I, uh, when I'm doing lung biopsies and things start to go wrong, this is a really nice solution to kind of get you back on track and, and just basically into the routine of, of doing procedures like you always do. One of the details about placing the U-centesis deal that's very important. Um, and I have a picture of this in the paper that I think you should look at for any listeners out there, um, if you're gonna do this technique. And that is that when you put the eucentesis needle in, it's a very small catheter, it's a multi-side hole catheter, but make sure you put it in at a fairly shallow angle with respect to the surface of the lung. That's so that when you re-expand the lung, the centesis needle doesn't poke the lung surface, which can be painful and distort the anatomy that you're trying to hold stable. So put it in at an oblique angle so it folds up nicely in the pleural space when the lung re-expands. So that's just a small detail, but I think it's important uh, to make sure that, that you're going to decrease your complications uh, with the pleural blood patching and, and with the centesis needle. Does it make any difference if you direct the UE needle towards your actual presumed site where there's a hole in the lung or towards the, the site where your uh, introducer needle punctured the pleura? Well, that's something that we don't know for sure. Okay. 
The way I think about it is that the blood patch that we're going to put into the pleural surface distributes itself fairly evenly over the entire surface area of the lung. And I'll get to this in a moment, but when you do do the blood patch, you lay the person down so that the biopsy side is down and that helps decrease leakage from the, the site of the puncture. But I think it also allows the blood to pool near the puncture site. And so my guess is it probably doesn't matter, but, uh, but it's not something I know for sure. Okay. I got the feeling that you were about to launch into how the actual um, plural blood patch component. Right. Okay. So assuming that you had a pneumothorax while you're doing the biopsy, at this stage, I've introduced a eucentesis needle into the pleural space. I've re-expanded the lung and performed the biopsy. So um, as one of my old professors said, you had the complication, don't don't let that stop you from getting a diagnostic yield too. And so go ahead and do the biopsy. You know, if, if you create more of an air leak, you have, a, you have the thing under control because you have a catheter in the pleural space. So, so you're, you're good to go. So at that point, once I've finished the biopsy, I'll still blood patch, do a parenchymal blood patch as we described before, because you wanna to try to stop the air leak if at all possible. And so I have to admit that I'm a little bit more generous with my parenchymal blood patch in the face of a known pneumothorax. And so maybe instead of injecting three or four cc's in the tract, I'll inject seven, eight, nine cc's in the tract, something along those lines. And I, tr I try to stop the air leak if, if possible. So now I'm in a situation where I've done a parenchymal blood patch, the biopsy needle and the introducer are out, and I'm left with a eucentesis needle in the pleural space hooked directly to wall suction and the lung is back uh, reinflated. And so at this point, uh, many people in the past would consider that an aspiration and they just pull the eucentesis needle and put the patient biopsy side down and take their chances. And, and that's what we used to do. But now what I'll do is um, through a three-way stopcock, I'll place a three-way stopcock on the eucentesis needle. One of the three-way ports is to the patient one of the three-way ports is to the wall suction. And the third is what I'm going to do my pleural blood patch through. And the way I do that is very similar to the parenchymal blood patch. Instead of though five cc's, Marshall will draw more blood. And the median volume in this study was 30 cc's. But I have to admit that our numbers have been inching up over time. And it's Maybe it's that old American adage, if a little is good, a lot's better. So they, <laughs> right, so, right. And, and we couldn't actually prove that more blood is better, but I don't know. I kind of figure it's not worse. So, so what the heck? <laughs> um, and, uh, Still not as much as the half a liter that your cardiothoracic uh, colleague was dumping in. So Exactly. I, I, have to, I have to laugh is that one of the reviewers for the paper, uh, when we told them that we pulled out, you know, even 100 cc's or 50 cc's, they were shocked at this high volume of blood that that is coming out of the patient's veins. And and I said, geez, if you only knew what the thoracic surgeons are doing, you wouldn't have <laughs> criticized me for it in, in the paper. But anyway, so I, I think our I think our blood patches are so much less extreme than than what sure. the thoracic surgeons are doing. You know, you pull out maybe I I do generally about 50 cc's now and okay. So Marshall will pull 50 cc's. I'll put the lure lock syringe on the three-way stopcock. And then you allow, dur during this whole time that you're prepping the patient for the pleural blood patch or everything, you leave them on suction. Because just having the hole opposed to the 
chest wall probably does some good too. And now we want to add some blood as well. So there's no reason to, to not continue suction during this entire time. So then I'll, I'll hook the syringe to the three-way stopcock. And then uh, when we're all ready and everybody's ready, I'll change the three-way stopcock and inject the 50 cc's of blood right in the pleural space, pull the stopcock, band-aid on, patient side down. And then I leave them on the CT scanner for 10 or 15 minutes, do a quick check scan to make sure that the lung has stayed inflated. And if that's good, they go right to recovery. And we do the same couple hours with a one-hour chest x-ray to make sure the lung stayed inflated and then the patient gets discharged. So uh, many times the patient doesn't even know that they've had a pleural blood patch, much less a parenchymal blood patch, which every patient pretty much gets. This can be really fast. I mean, I, I figure it takes you an extra five, 10 minutes, something like that. And uh, if you have the equipment ready, uh, we have a little box that has all the connectors and tubing and all that stuff, because that seems to be the the biggest holdup when I decided I need to do it. Somebody's running around the room trying to like, where did I put that three-way stopcock? And where sure. did I put that centesimal? So I would advise you to have a little kind of pneumothorax box with everything that you're going to need. Uh, we have a separate chest tube box too with everything that we need if we're going to put in a chest tube. And that way you're, you're doing a little bit less scrambling. And I think that the procedures go a little faster that way. So that's, that's how you do a pleural blood patch. It's really fast. It's simple. And it works like 80, 85% of the time, especially in patients that don't have emphysema. It works virtually every, every single time. I think in our paper, it only failed once in a patient uh, that did not have emphysema. So it's a very effective procedure and it saves you those, all you guys know about clamping chest tubes and looking at chest x-rays and being bothered the next day. And, and man, I'll tell you, it feels really good when you discharge the patients and you don't have to worry about all that extraneous work on the, on the day following. I totally agree. And, and that's to say nothing of, you know, the patient experience and to improve how fast they get out of the hospital, you know, things, the longer you're in the hospital, the more things that can happen to people, especially in the days of COVID. So yes, to echo, echo that sentiment. And that's one of the things I wanted to point out in the paper is that of the patients you did that on, and I don't remember the end, but of the patients without emphysema, it worked in all but one. And I think the overall rate and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Fred, but it was five out of six or 50 out of 60 patients who were able to do the pleural blood patch went on to have no additional intervention and they just got discharged same day. Yes, that's exactly right. It was something, it was over 80% of the patients, uh, the blood patching resolved the pneumothorax without the need for a chest tube. And our numbers would have been better, I think. Our overall pneumothorax and chest tube numbers would have been better, except there were something like one and a half, our, our overall chest tube rate then is two and a half percent or so. Mm -hmm. And that number is one of the lowest in the literature. And it would have been around 1%, but it turns out that back in the early parts of, of the study, earlier in our practice, some of my, uh, my partners, and, and me too, I'm guilty of this as well. When we had one of those pneumothoraces that, you know, the lung just dropped when you touched it kind of thing, and, and everybody that does a lot of lung biopsies know what I'm talking about, um, they would just put a chest tube in. And so as we were just learning about blood patching, uh, there were still some people that were sticking in chest tubes in that situation. And I think that if we first tried a pleural blood patch as a salvage procedure, I think our chest tube rate would have been down around 1%, which is, I think, by far the best in the literature. And, uh, and I think most people's practice 
if you use a 19 gauge introducer, 20 gauge needle, I think most people's practice will be very similar to ours. That's great. So one of the things I wanted to ask about in the, the 60 patients who you guys did the plural blood patch, is it always in scenarios where the biopsy is still in progress or being done? Or were, were there ever circumstances where you do the biopsy, you do the parenchymal blood patch, and so everything's out, and then you say, oh, you, I think sometimes just inherently you either have a symptomatic pneumothorax or a pneumothorax that you just have the feeling is larger than it, like the little tiny post-biopsy pneumothoraces that we sometimes see. So I guess my question is, in some of those patients, the, the 60 patients with pneumothoraces, were some of those patients included patients who have already completed their biopsy and the parenchymal blood patch had been done? Yes to all the above. Um, the, <laughs> the, the plural blood patch is really versatile and we use it from all the way from the minute you start. In fact, I, I, I have to digress for one minute to tell you a, a quick story because this is really funny. So, sure. so um, we had a fellow who's not going to be named and um, he was very aggressive with local anesthesia and a couple of times dropped the lung before we even started the biopsy. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we have a name for that, but it, it gives away his name. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name it. <laughs> that particular procedure is now named after him. <laughs> oh, it is exactly right. Yes. And, uh, we have another, um, <laughs> I have another partner who is spectacularly good. And, uh, and he, even one time when he was a fellow, he went even further, he dropped the lung and managed to inject lidocaine into the lung parenchyma in the same patient. So we named that after him also. So, so we have, <laughs> so, so we, we, uh, yeah, they have their own, they have their own complications named after them. So anyway, getting back to, uh, when we use plural blood patching, it can go all the way from those particular situations where we drop the lung during lidocaine administration, all the way to uh, delayed pneumothoraces in patients that come back a day or so after the procedure, after they've been discharged with a delayed pneumothorax. And this, what happened at our place a couple of times is that patients that had had a lung biopsy, maybe a day or two earlier had gone home, were doing okay, maybe had a coughing fit, dropped their lung, came to the ER, and our emergency room colleagues put a big surgical chest tube into them. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that was really nasty. And uh, I remember one particular patient was really large, around 300 pounds. And, and when I found out about this, I went to go see him on the floor and he had like a three or four inch cut in his chest to get down to his chest wall to put a surgical chest tube in. So, and, and he's glaring at me. He was not happy with, with what had happened. And, and I'm like, geez, I wish they would have told me because, you know, I could have slid a tiny little tube in there and, and taken care of it. In fact, patients that come back to the ED with delayed pneumothoraces, we do a, we, we give them a trial of a, pleural blood patch. And I think I personally have salvaged like four or five patients uh, with delayed pneumothoraces and, and haven't needed a chest tube. So they come to the ED with a delayed pneumo, bring them up to CT, you know, do a pleural blood patch, watch them for a couple hours, then send them back home. And uh, knock on wood, I don't think that we've had a, sec a patient that's come back a second time in that situation. So, so we use pleural blood patching all the way from when our fellows drop the lungs during, during local anesthesia, all the way to, to delayed pneumothoraces that, uh, that happened days afterwards. In the scenario that if you had a delayed pneumothorax and say it was a posterior approach, and so you're bringing them back uh, next day for a pleural blood patch, would the approach be to have the patient uh, supine 
anterior stick with the UE and then uh, reinflate the lung and then it administer the pleural uh, blood patch that way? Or, or would you have, or would you make any effort to put them in the, the prone position and have the UE needle a little bit closer to the access site? That kind of goes back to my earlier question. I suspect I know the answer. I have to admit that I don't make any particular effort to to get the needle close to the puncture site. Um, gotcha. Just assuming that that the blood's going to distribute itself fairly uniformly. Now, when you look at a chest X-ray after you do a, a blood patch, it's really hard to tell that you did anything. Sometimes, sometimes with a you know a fifty cc blood patch, you might see a tiny little pleural fusion or something. So, I have to assume that that there's this tiny little rim of, of blood, very thin, that's surrounding the entire lung. And um, I'm hoping that gravity will bring more of the blood to the puncture site, but I, I'm not 100% sure that that's, that's true. But um, so I, I personally don't make much of a specific effort to get the blood near the puncture site. Okay. And so going to the paper, and one of the uh, statistics that struck me was that, and you can correct me if I get any of these numbers wrong, but blood patch versus no blood patch in y'all's sample it was 5.7 percent of patients who had a blood patch did not require any intervention did not have any complication requiring an intervention so no so you may have a pneumothorax you may have a tiny pneumothorax but then that pneumothorax goes on to either be asymptomatic or not enlarge on a chest x-ray and so no future intervention so 5.7 percent with the parenchymal blood patch and then if you did not have a blood patch, then closer to 14% having a complication that required an intervention. Is that right? Those numbers are correct. And this was a uh, result. I, I have to admit that one of the reviewers, no, I think it was Dan Z, who's the, uh, who's the editor of JVIR, pointed this out to me that in, in one of the reviews that we had the opportunity within our uh, sample to differentiate what happened to patients that had parenchymal blood patching versus those that didn't have parenchymal blood patching. Right. Because our series included some of the early cases where we didn't routinely use a parenchymal blood patch. So it was kind of serendipitous. And, and honestly, uh, Dan had to point that out to me. I didn't really put that together. That wasn't in the original version of the paper. And so we went back uh, with our revision and we looked and that's exactly right. I was gratified to see that that patients that did have a parenchymal blood patch had a lower rate of complications than those that did not. And this was one more confirmation that blood patching does work. And, and this has been proven in other studies as well. In fact, I'm not sure that a negative study on this topic has ever been published. Um, and it would have been a little embarrassing if, <laughs> if the opposite had been true. <laughs> sure. Because honestly, I, I didn't know the answer when, when Dan had pointed out that, that I had failed to include that in our, in the first version of the, of the paper. But fortunately it, uh, it, it, it lined up as the previous literature had, uh, had, had suggested it was going to be and, and our own experience too. Thank goodness. <laughs> right. And I, I think it was, uh, there was a paper in 2000, uh, maybe it was four, four or five years ago. There was another paper in JVR talking about parenchymal blood patches and decreased rates of pneumothoraces that required an intervention. But that's one of the things I, I did want to like drill down on for the patients is that you may still have these small pneumothoraces after your lung biopsies. And, and that's so our um, practice is kind of a microcosm of what you guys had earlier on in your practice in that I and maybe a couple of other partners will do blood patches very routinely. In fact, 
now 100% of the time for our lung biopsies. Um, and then some of the other partners do not. And some of the CT techs will say that, oh, you sh you're still getting about as many pneumothoraces as your partners. But I said, but how many are we actually putting the chest tube in? I'm like, pay attention to that. And certainly our numbers aren't as large as your numbers. So I think it's harder for them to, to see the bigger picture. But I'm highly confident that the number of chest tubes that I've put in since I've started putting in uh, or since I've started doing blood patches has gone down. And I think I stopped, I started doing it two years into my practice. As soon as that JVI article and I think it was 17 or uh, 16 came out. Mm -hmm. I think your, your experience is a, uh, is a reflection of ours too. And I have to laugh because um, Annie's Lavore, who's the primary author on this paper, she's a medical student here at, at University of Wisconsin, very talented. And Annie said to me a couple of times, you know, the numbers are pretty convincing. Why, you know, why do you have some patients that, that did not have a blood patch and some that did? And, you know, this is, it's, it seems like it should be really obvious. And I think your, your, your observation is, is very valid. There's, there's two things. One is there's the noise of the large number of pneumothoraces that are not even really a complication. I mean, they're an observation sure. by imaging only. And those nobody really cares about. And so when I look at a pneumothorax rate, uh, that really doesn't mean anything to me. What is important, obviously, is uh, the rate of the need for additional interventions. And based on that, I think the preclinical blood patch has really shown, shown its value. <laughs> the second observation that I just have to laugh when you're explaining your practice, because ours is, is very similar too, is that, and, and this is what I was explaining to Annie when when she was asking why we have some people doing this and some people not doing it. And, and just the fundamental, it's, it's a fundamental human condition that it is very difficult to change what people do. And people have a, have a way of justifying what they do. Um, they have an internal confirmation bias. And um, even in the face of pretty good evidence, it's, it's hard to get people to change their practice. And, uh, you know, that's just the human condition, I think. <laughs> And, and so in, in a way it's good because you have kind of internal experimentation going on. And, and if you find one way is better than the other, ideally you'll vary and, and kind of move your practice more, more towards that. And, and that's what happened in our practice is that my partners are very evidence-based. And uh, when they saw some of the results of parenchymal and pleural blood patching, to their credit, every single one of them has has switched over and now does parenchymal blood patching and pleural blood patching as a standard. That's great. So to bring up the counterpoint, are there any downsides to doing either a parenchymal, well, let's just start with that. Are there any downsides to a parenchymal blood patch? And I'll let you take it from there because I was going to start listing things that were just kind of straw men, but go ahead. Yeah. And I think straw man is probably a good word to describe kind of semi or pseudo arguments that have been used, have been used against doing a blood patch, it takes you, you know, an extra minute or two, which in the context of a complicated lung biopsy is probably a very small amount of time. Um, there have been other methods to, shall I say, plug the hole, so to speak, um, after you do a lung biopsy. And virtually every one of these has proven to be effective in one way or another. So for example, people inject saline in the tract, they'll put gel foam in the tract, there'll be fibrin plugs that'll be put in the track. All kinds of things, almost anything that you can think of has been placed in the track. And I think virtually every one of these papers have been positive. So 
there's probably nothing magic about blood. Um, I like it because it's a liquid when you inject it. And so it goes through a 19 gauge introducer needle very easily. And then eventually it becomes a solid as it clots and fills the airways, uh, preventing an air leak. So I think it's kind of an ideal solution to inject, but it's not the only solution. So I don't want to put it out there that any of the other techniques don't work because I think they, they all do. There is maybe a theoretical risk of increased infection. Um, again, probably a straw man argument. The infection rate uh, for lung biopsies should be near zero in, in your practice and, and, and in my practice. Maybe it's slightly higher for pleural blood patches, but knock on wood, I've never had to come back and, and drain a you know, an empyeme or anything like that in a, in a patient that we did a, a, a pleural blood patch in. I think this is one of those rare techniques in, in the history of, of human medicine where it makes sense. The data seems to be following it and there's not much of a downside. I mean, it basically belongs to the patient. You're taking out, administering in a different area. There's no cost to the patient. There's no real added time to the procedure. You're getting so much bang for your buck that I don't want to call it a no-brainer, but I think if you're aware of the literature, it's maybe another way to put it, it's quite compelling to at least add to your practice or consider adding. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I have heard in terms of plural blood patching, and maybe this was in the context of a surgical chest tube, an open thoracotomy, and, a, you know, some sort of lung resection with a big staple line, is that it is maybe theoretically possible that you could have more adhesions in the, in the pleura after a, after a blood patch. I guess that's true. In fact, Dan uh, asked me whether our surgeons have noted more adhesions when they go to do VATS or robotic thoracotomies. And, uh, and really, they, they haven't mentioned anything to me about it. I, I have to admit that we don't pull them or anything, um, but they have not really complained that this is a significant problem when they go to do a subsequent procedure. So um, I think that might have been something that's left over from the the surgery days and the very large volume blood patches in the context of a 30 French tube and, and staple lines and major surgeries and things like that. Um, but I think for us that that's not, not really, uh, not really a, a, a downside. We also do not pull our cardiothoracic surgeons, but they're of the ilk where we would know if, um, <laughs> like they were, they would let us know immediately if all of a sudden they were like, oh, we're getting these tons of adhesions. They're, they're particular, <laughs> they're particular docs and like they, they like what they like. And so I feel like as soon as they had heard there was something different about a lung biopsy and like they were getting added adhesions, they would let us know like very quickly. Um, I feel like even if we had one adhesion, I'd hear about it and our whole practice would be like, like we'd have to change. Um, that's an over-exaggeration. They're a good bunch. All right. Well, um, Fred, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's, it's my pleasure. It was great to talk to you, Chris. All right. Uh, to the audience, thank you for listening. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes of this episode. Um, as always, we're about one week behind from actually putting out the podcast and getting those show notes up. Um, but you're going to be able to find those at www.backtable.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or whatever know that you, our audience, value what we're doing. You're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. 
This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we really do enjoy the getting, uh, we really do enjoy the feedback and we read them all. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. 